Hello and welcome to the start of a brand new series of Some Essex Lad and a Paralympian. Yes, we are back. Sadly though, David Weatherill, my fellow co-host from Series 1, has had to step down as Paralympic training ramps up. But nonetheless, we have a cracking new episode for you all. First up is powerlifter and silver Paralympic medalist Ali Jawad. Now Ali was born without legs, moved from Lebanon to the UK at just 6 months old, and found powerlifting by accident. He has Crohn's disease, and had an emergency operation in 2010 to save his life. His story is one of inspiration, dedication, and rehabilitation. So sit back, and enjoy. Yeah, should, should we start at the beginning then? Kind of like Charlton and growing up, kind of oh, yeah. to, to go way back. Um, back yeah, yeah. How how was that for you? Yeah, so um, obviously I, w- I was born in Lebanon uh, during the kind of war at the time um, with Israel, um, and the, the weird thing was was that um, when my mum got pregnant, um, all the scans revealed that I was actually healthy. Um, yeah, they didn't, they didn't clock that I had no legs. <laughs> it just shows you the technology back in the, back in the day. Uh, in the like it, to, to be able not to, to show you that, that's, yeah. that, that sounds surreal. Yeah, so obviously mum gave birth, came out of no legs and a uh, bit of a shock to them and to everybody probably in the, in the room. Um, so obviously, like, you know, we're talking about, you know, 31 years ago now, but um, a lot, disabled people at the time weren't really... Uh, we're, we're kind of hidden away, I think, in Lebanon. Uh, they weren't really treated like humans. Um, there's no facilities for disabled people back then. Um, so the doctor kind of took my dad aside and kind of asked me to get rid of, like, get rid sort of thing. Really? Yeah. Um, so, what, so what era are we talking about? Which, which decade? Oh, 80s. 80s. So I was born in 1989. Right. So that was kind of, yeah, the end of kind of, yeah, the Soviet Union then, wasn't it? And then kind of everything around that so so yeah it was um kind of yeah so my, my parents decided that uh to keep me obviously great um but they knew that for me to have a normal well an, a more normal life they needed to kind of get away from Lebanon and uh, come to a country that could offer me you know some sort of normality so came to the UK when I was six months old so where, whereabouts was it in Lebanon was it Beirut or was it kind of anywhere else yeah so I was born in um Beirut but like I live in the south which is only about an hour away from Beirut and I take it with the with the conflict with Israel that that was quite an easy decision for them to make to, to move to the UK then yeah I think in, in them in their minds it was how how are they going to support a child with no job opportunities no money the economy's struggling obviously um and obviously during a war so they had to go someplace that, you know, at least kind of offered some sort of opportunity. Yeah, so how, how was that kind of, did they mention stories to you, kind of what it was like for you when you were that young, when you were kind of in Beirut at the time? Because obviously you can't really remember being six months old at that point. Um, I think some of the stories, well, they mainly focused on just how dangerous it was to go out because you just don't know when you're going to get bombed. Um, and things you could hear, the bombing, every single day um so nobody was, nobody was like nobody really went out just in case uh you know there was a random attack and that's actually quite scary thinking like you could go out and not come back so i think they, that the decision was made for them that you know they had a disabled child and they, they needed to get away was moving to the uk quite an easy decision then or was there any other countries that they were thinking of overall um no so my, my uncle um at the time actually worked in the uk so it was just easy. We we um we knew somebody here and um we we got to we got to stay with him for about a year in, in a one bedroom flat. <laughs> oh, one bedroom flat. Poor, poor uncle. <laughs> oh wow, that must have been a uh, quite cosy that. Well, I can't remember. So uh... <laughs> yeah. So you moved to was it Edmonton, Tottenham area? 
kind of north yeah, yeah, London. North London, yeah. And then you kind of grew up kind of in that environment through your childhood, really. Yeah, in Tottenham, yeah. Um, I think the the one thing that my parents did um, was that they, because obviously they had, a, that when we first came over, it was suggested that I go to a special school. Um, and they refused and said, well, no, he's physically disabled, but mentally I think he's fine. Um, and the only way we think he's going to be, we think he's going to learn to be independent is that he needs to go to a mainstream school and we're going to make sure he's got no facilities at all. So he has to adapt on a daily basis. And that's what happened. I went to a school that had no facilities. What, none at all? No, so all stairs, no ramps, um, no lifts. And I had to adapt on a daily basis. I had to learn, uh, which for me, I thought was normal, uh, but not thinking that actually, this, you know, it's, it's not normal. So my parents made sure that I had it hard from the beginning. So I just, I knew what was going to come at me. Looking back at that now, do you kind of, in a way, kind of almost uh, appreciate kind of almost where they were coming from in terms of, you know, trying to make you think that you have to kind of adapt? Or was it a case now looking back, you think they should have put you into a school, which would have been a lot easier for you? No, you know what? I think, they, I think they made the right choice because um, not only have I been so independent for it, um, I'm probably the most independent self person you ever meet. You're thinking like this guy's crazy, but it's the fact that I had to adapt from a young age and having obstacles on a daily basis to adapt from. But actually, at the same time, the deception that this was normal was also, you know, was quite, you know, but looking back, thinking, wow, like I got kind of told this is life. Just get on with it. You're going to have to find a way just to get through it so for them they gave me that mentality just from the start and they made sure that they installed that in me i can imagine you know the stairs would have been quite difficult i mean how was that just trying to walk up oh, no. oh it was great um like you got you had kids looking at me going this guy's crazy he's going up the stairs dragging his wheelchair um they tried to help i was like no i don't want any help i can do this um and i think what happened was was that the kids never believed me at all i was actually in the popular groups in school i was never bullied Nobody even looked at my disability because I was so confident and I was doing everything they could do and more. So like I fitted in pretty well. And I knew it was a little bit different because I was in a wheelchair, but because I could do so much, it didn't really affect my childhood. Was that where kind of that confidence, because you took up judo, am I correct in saying, like when you were young, was that kind of confidence from that, like a physical sport that you knew once you got into that kind of environment that, you know, you wouldn't be bullied because you were taking up something so physical to an extent or... No, I think my kind of um, my love of sport started about five years earlier when I was six. Um, so obviously, like massive Liverpool fan uh, when I was a kid. Oh, you're a Liverpool fan? Oh no, I'm a Man United yeah. fan. Oh I'm, no, I'm happy. But um, I actually said to my mum, "I want to play for Liverpool one day." She started laughing at me, and, she, and I said, "What? Why are you laughing?" She's like, "Well, you need, you need legs to play football." And I was like, "Oh yeah, good point. I never see anybody with no legs playing football ever." So, <laughs> Um, yeah, that's a funny story, but like, so she, she crushed my dreams playing for Liverpool, but um, in 96, I watched the Atlanta Olympic Games, uh, and I watched Michael Johnson win his historic 200 and 400 metre gold medals. The world records, weren't they, at the yeah, time? At the time, yeah, I think he broke the 200 metre world record at the time. Um, was it the four? I think, I think he broke, yeah, I think he broke one, one of the world records, but he won two gold medals. Um, but... The, the, the thing that I had was, was that one, I was witnessing something incredible. And two, when he stood on top of the podium, he just literally, like, he started crying. And I just wanted to feel what he was feeling. And that was my, I was like, right, I have to do what he, he's done. Obviously, I can't run like him because uh, I've got no legs. Yeah, yeah. Or out there, I can at least try to be like him. Uh, and then that's where kind of judo came along when I was about 11, yeah. So was that kind of like was it was that kind of like the one moment or was there a kind of a build up to that in terms of you know like thinking about what what you wanted to do into the future? No, it's weird. Like I had that dream when I was six, and then it took about four or five years to actually find a sport. Like I didn't even actively go out and search for it because I just didn't know where to start. Um, like so, for me, what was lucky was that um, that. I think during break time, um, I was like, I was wrestling somebody, and, you know, like, you know, you're 11, 
like it's break time, like you throw, like you kind of play about with your mates. And I was literally throwing my mate on the floor on the concrete. Uh, teacher saw me and uh, she's like, oh, uh, can't do that. Stop fighting. Um, like I got detention. Right. And I was like, oh, I was like, I never get detention. I'm a good boy. This is like, I don't even do anything. We're just like play fighting. Um, so, but she wanted me to go to the sports hall and not to the detention room after school. So in that she saw the ability. Yeah. In judo from- yeah so I was like scared. I was like, oh, I have to tell my parents. I was like, right, I, I know. I could like tell my parents to come pick up later and just lie to them that I wasn't in detention. I was just doing something else. Um, which worked, by the way. But like, so I got into the sports hall and I thought, this is, this is a weird detention because like you've got mats out and there's like this, I don't know, like some sort of, like I thought some sort of like suit. I didn't know what it was. Uh, and she, she came in, suited up like with a judo gi on. And she's like, I saw you uh, wrestle at break and uh, I think you've got a lot of potential. Have you ever thought about judo? And I was like, I did not know what that is. So she was the one out of, so it could be any teacher in the school and she was the one who was actually in charge of judo at the time at the school who gave you She was my PE teacher. She was my PE teacher. Oh, um, she was a PE teacher, right. She used to do judo, she used to do judo uh, like ages ago. She's, uh, she was very good. Um, and then she obviously saw something in me. So that day, um, put the judo gi on and uh, she absolutely handed it to me. But, <laughs> was, uh, but she said, uh, you know, for someone, she goes, I think you've got an advantage having no legs because you're so low to the ground, they won't be able to throw you. And you're so strong, um, that will be very hard to, to beat you. And that was when um, I decided to take up judo. So it was kind of like football was kind of the first big dream. And then it was kind of judo. And then was when did weightlifting, powerlifting come into that? What was the, what was the timeline between judo and and powerlifting was there any chance you know you could have potentially made it in judo at the Paralympics? Do you reckon? Oh, it was, it was a massive chance. Um, you know, I did judo for four years, committed literally my whole life to it. But also, it taught me the art of balancing your studies and competing at the top level. Um, the issue was, and nobody knew at the time, and this is where the kind of uh, education around Paralympic sport was at the time. Nobody knew that amputees did not classify at the Paralympic Games in judo. Right. It's, it's only for the visually impaired and the blind. Nobody told us that. Not even like even she didn't know that. So I trained so hard, like one minute a lot of competitions. I beat a lot of top top guys. And uh, in 2004, I came back from my best career performance. I beat like somebody that was 28. I was only 15. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. He, was like, he was like a legend in the sport and I thought I was going to Athens I thought this is it I'm, I'm going to qualify uh, then we got told that he's an amputee he can't classify there's, there's no way he can go and so my Paralympic dream kind of uh, was crushed when I was about 15 that seems just quite a cruel way of you know uh, was that like an IPC ruling at the time then just a classification it still is um, still it, is no amputees are, it's only, it's only blind and visually impaired um, in judo at the moment still. Um, yeah, it's not changed. Yeah, that does seem kind of ridiculous that it's so kind of limited to specific, that, you know, it's almost, you know, they're kind of defining disability themselves to an extent and it's kind of changes within each individual sport. I guess um, you have to think about how competitive are amputees going to be in their classification at the games. I think for, for a classification to be at the games, you have to have loads of con- countries participating. There has to be some sort of competitive, competitiveness um, to it. And at, at, the t- at the time, in 2003, 2004, I was literally like probably the only amputee that I saw doing it. Right, so then it was a case of how many people are actually going to be involved in... Exactly, and I, I get where they were coming from. Like At the time, I was heartbroken, but actually looking back, I totally got why. I'm hoping now, obviously I've not been like, you know, I've not been uh, kind of updating myself on, on judo and at an amputee sport, but I feel like, I think now they, they could go, you know what, we want more classifications in judo. I think it's, it's important that we diversify, diversify it. Nice. What was, the, what was the change then from judo to, to powerlifting? How, how did that come about? Uh, well, it was an accident really. Um, my parents 
said to me I should focus on my GCSEs at the time when I, when I found out about judo. Um, and that's what I did. Uh, I quit sport thinking my dream was over and focused on my GCSEs for about a year because, you know, I wanted to be a good boy and get good grades. Um, it was actually after my maths exam, my friend... Now, my friend's quite spontaneous. Like, he's, he's quite instinct. Like, he goes on, on, like, impulse. So he goes to me, oh, we're going to the gym. Let's go. I was like, what? He's like, I just, you know, so he literally dragged me to the gym, uh, which was opposite the school at the time, after my exam. I didn't want to go. He literally forced me to go. Um, and this gym was, like, run down. It was, like, proper, like, Rocky Balboa style, which I love because I grew up with Rocky. Um, nice, it was quite intimidating at 16 because he had all these big men grunting and obviously like leaking everywhere and it was dusty and I was just like, oh, this is, you know, weird. Um, but we managed to get like a corner in the gym, started bench pressing um, and on my first ever go, I lifted 100 kilo. Your first ever go, you lifted 100 kilo? Yeah, so I've never been to a gym before apart from that day. And then the whole room stopped and I thought I did something wrong. Um, so... This guy comes up to me, he's like, wait there, I need to go get somebody. And I literally thought, oh my God, what have I done wrong? I didn't do anything, I didn't speak to anybody. So I said to my friend, put the weights away, we are going. So literally, put the weights away, got to the reception, and this old man stopped my path. And he said to me, you're not going anywhere. I was like, oh my God, I'm in big trouble. And then he started explaining that not many people can lift 100 kilo. And if this is my first time, I need to come back because he thinks I could get to the games in the future. And that was my second chance. So wow, so you kind of came into kind of judo and powerlifting by accident, so thinking that you'd done something wrong on both occasions. Both occasions. And then in the end, it was kind of somebody spotted your natural ability to, to do that. But at least with powerlifting, then you didn't have a ruling at the time, or you, you know, you could actually go into into into. I mean, your your records. I'll just quickly go through your record. I mean, it's like a young age. It's staggering. Silver at the junior worlds, uh, junior worlds, two thousand six. Gold at the European champs. Junior Champs 2007, Gold at the World Junior Champs 2008, British, British Senior and Junior Record and Euro, uh, European Championship Junior Record and the second biggest ever Great Britain, uh, the, the, the second uh, greatest ever weight uh, from a GB athlete, Paralympic athlete at nine, 19 years old. At the time, yeah. So, now, uh, that, so that's been beaten, so I'm third now. But at the time, it was the second biggest. Oh, you're third now. Yeah, that's right. I was, well, I was 19. Yeah, like the two other lifts were at like senior senior level. So um, yeah, so yeah. L- luckily for me, I was a very good junior. I mean, that's that that's, that doesn't sound surprising given you benched 100 kilos first up. Well, I mean, what yeah. was the weight? What was the weight at uh, 19 that you benched? Well, 190. 190. Yeah. Was it quite a from, so from from the 100 kilos to to kind of that was that quite a, was that a gradual slow gradual thing or was it kind of 10 kilos each week? No, so um, when, I, when, I, when I committed, um, I was told that I was probably not going to make the Beijing Paralympic Games because I'm too young. And I only had two years to make it as well. Uh, so within two years, I benched from 100 to 190 in two years, which is incredible. Was that kind of unheard of at the time? Uh, well, yeah, you've got, you've got the newbie games and stuff like that, but to put a 90 kilo in two years at the age that I was... Um, and that that was was crazy. Like at the time, I just didn't appreciate how good it was, until I like look back and go, how many juniors have actually ever done that? Actually, how many seniors have benched one ninety? That sort of body weight. But at the time, I just didn't appreciate it at all. I just thought, oh, one ninety, I'm still not good enough because I I, I barely made the games because I was so young. I actually, I think I qualified in last place for the games on my birthday. Wow. So how yeah. how 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 was Beijing? I want to quickly get back to the guy actually before going to Beijing. Um, so so this old guy that, that stopped you at the gym was he fairly um, instrumental in kind of getting you to a really good stage? Then I think I owe my my initial two three years uh, to him and uh, his assistant. Um, so Dave Kay and Lee Wan at Woodgreen Weightlifting Club. If it wasn't for them laying down the foundations of uh, you know of like training hard, being consistent, um, and you know, getting me to a place where I qualified, which nobody expected. Um, yeah, for them, for me, they've, they've been, you know, incredible um, in, that, in that kind of initial process. So what are their backgrounds? Have they had any previous experience with kind of previous, you know, Paralympic or Olympic powerlifters then? 
Yeah, so I've been quite, so I got I was lucky because Dave actually owned the gym and he used to be the head coach of the para powerlifting team. Um, so he so he, he sported it and he had forty years experience. So uh, and obviously Lee he coached Lee when he was younger and then Lee became a coach. So they had loads of experience um, to, to to coach you know juniors um, and obviously they've been at the top level in terms of coaching. So to me, I was in the best hands as a junior. They must have thought yes, get in there when you arrived at the gym and saw you do that that time. Well, the thing is, Dave was going to retire until he saw me. You know, Dave was quite old at the time. So, um, you know, when he, when he saw me, I think it gave him a little bit, you know, kind of more, t- kind of more determination just to kind of see it through. Uh, I could be like his last project uh, before he retired. It sounds like a movie. It, it, it does sound a bit like a movie script that you get this, you know, some, you know, this, this trainer who's trained their whole life and then suddenly they're about to retire and then somebody else, a young prodigy comes along and then it's, you know, it, it's Beijing from that. So Beijing, that must have been surreal um, at such a young age. I mean, when I spoke to, we had Ellie Simmons on uh, the previous series and uh, David as well. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they mentioned, you know, like both of them were young at Beijing as well. And they mentioned how kind of quick it went. And now they can appreciate how quick it went. I'm guessing that was the same for you. Yeah, it's weird. Like it, it goes really quickly, but when you're in the moments, you, you're thinking you think you're in a daze, in a dream. You think it's not reality. Um, it's like a different world. Uh, I had to like pinch myself on a daily basis to think I've actually one made it, and two, you're actually here to perform. Stop enjoying it so much. <laughs> like it's so distracting. Like it's a hundred miles an hour, twenty four seven. You couldn't really switch off. It was really hard, especially when. You know, for me, at the time, Dave Weir was like the superstar. And I was like, oh my God, I'm the same team as David Weir. This is crazy. So did you end up going to, you know, the... the Paralympic opening ceremony, closing ceremony as well, and then experiencing all the culture coming from that as well? Yeah, so I've always said to people, like, it's important that you do at least one opening ceremony in your career. But after that, they're pretty much all the same. And it depends when you're competing. So if you're competing on the next day or quite close to the opening ceremony, there's no point going. But luckily in Beijing, because I was, I was a bit bigger then, uh, I was only like, I was day eight, day nine. So I could afford to go to the opening ceremony and the closing. So I got to experience the whole thing. I can imagine at the time, you know, like you, you, you're with all these athletes and then suddenly you're here in your debut and you're thinking, how have I got here? Like, you, you know, you had this dream of going to a Paralympics or Olympics, watching Michael Jordan in, in 96 at Atlanta. And then you thought that was going to be in one particular sport. And then ironically, out of chance, it's actually in another overall. Yeah, I think for me, it was just like, you know, two, two years previously, I'd literally quit sport. I was actually really upset about not going, like my, my, my kind of judo dream being crushed. And obviously two years later, I'm literally at the bird's nest, like, and it was just like the most incredible thing. Um, it, was, it was the opening ceremony that made me realise that I'm finally a Paralympian because it was just like the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Did you, so, I'm in the games, did you end up falling ill at the games as well? So explain more about that then. Yeah, so coming into it, um, so as I said, I qualified in last place about six months previously on my birthday. Um, so I've only got the last slot. But then that six months, because of my rate of development, I literally committed like full time. Um, and I went from like, you know, someone that is going to make up the numbers to someone that could come quite high. Um, it might not be a medal, but it could be like maybe fifth or sixth. Three days before I competed, um, I lifted a weight. So my last session, I lifted a weight that would have won bronze on the day. Oh, so wow. I was in the best shape. Of it. Like, I was in great shape. And I was only like 19. So I got quite excited. Uh, even my coach at the time, because there was no like, social media really at the time, apart from Facebook, that you couldn't actually private message. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, well, this is way beyond. Like, for me, yeah. I, it was like 2010 was the first thing for me. It was like Blackberry's BBN. That was like, my yeah. experience. Yeah. So. So loads of emails and I got excited and he said, look, just calm down. You're here to enjoy it. Obviously he was happy, but he's like, just now just chill. Just don't do anything. Um, so the night before I competed, I went to dinner at the food hall and then came back and I got to the apartment and I started actually feeling quite ill. 
didn't think anything like didn't think how I got ill. Um, but it's weird. I tried to had like I had some like flu-like symptoms. My stomach was hurting. Uh, I was like sweating. I started getting really fatigued for no reason. Um, so I obviously saw the doctor. They quarantine me because that's what happens at the games. We get sick, you get put in a room like for twenty-four. Oh, nowadays you know, you wouldn't be the only one you know, yeah, in this yeah. environment nowadays anyway about quarantine. So um, so I got seen by the doctor. They said it was a head cold, but I was like, this is not like any other head cold I've ever had. Like I've trained through colds before. Like my stomach is literally killing me. Um, so all night I was on the toilet and lost about three kilo overnight of body weight, which is a lot to lose. Overnight? Overnight, yeah, three kilo. Wow. Uh, yeah. And that's yeah, that that is, that's pretty extensive, that. Yeah, so that's a lot of weight to lose. So I woke up, um, got seen. They were going to pull me out of the competition because I was quite ill. But I, I demanded that I compete. I said, look, I'm not here to medal. Like, I'm here to compete. Let me just get my, let me have my moment and then I'll, re- I'll get checked over afterwards. So, yeah, uh, the, the, I kind of set a target of not to come last uh, and I didn't come last. So, for me, it was, even though it was a harsh lesson, uh, I still managed to pull, pull it around um, only by a little bit, but I pulled it around and I managed to get a performance out of myself considering. So, what was that kind of performance then? Was it kind of any, anywhere near your best at what you did? No, so a few days before I benched 190, which would have won bronze at the games. Um, I only benched 182 at the time. Right, okay. So, yeah, I lost about seven kilo in three days on the bar. Which not, how, not, not surprising when you lose three kilo overnight in body weight. I was about to say, I know, like with F1 drivers, you know, they have to be at a specific kind of weight. You know, Lewis Hamilton always goes on about, you know, if, if he's gaining three kilos, let's say, that his time's going to go down, uh, you know, four tenths of a second. Is it the same kind of principle in powerlifting? Yeah, if you lose weight rapidly, your strength your strength will reduce like quickly. Um, it's very important that you, if you are going to lose weight, you do it very very gradually and slowly. So for you to lose that sort of weight overnight is is probably quite dangerous. To something and, and after that, I'm guessing was that the initial kind of first signs that you had from Crohn's disease? Yeah, not knowing at the time. So we got back, um, and I thought, you know what, like. I put everything in perspective. I thought in two years, you've managed to come from nothing to, you know, potentially you just bench press of middle weight. Like, so for me, like I learned like a big lesson. I thought luckily I was young enough to come back. Unfortunately for me, when I came back, things started to get worse very, very quickly. Um, I was bedridden. Um, I lost about 20 kilo in eight weeks of body weight. Um, seeing blood in the toilet, vomiting, wasn't eating. Uh, I literally went from a, you know, somebody really, really healthy to someone that looked really ill. Um, so they started testing me for like cancer, uh, things like that. So it was quite scary thinking that I've just gone to the greatest show in the world and then I've come back and been tested for cancer within like a few yeah, years. Yeah. And so it was quite scary for my parents, but I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought, you know, uh, and they couldn't find anything either. So because it wasn't cancer, they were testing me for all these stuff and I was nothing's coming up. And then obviously people thought I was making it up as well. People thought you're making it up? Yeah, because... Didn't they see the difference in the face? I think they could, but I, they thought I was just like, you know, being 19, they thought maybe I was just going through a bad patch. To, you know, they call it the post-Paralympic blues where you come back, you've experienced such a massive high, and then suddenly it's a massive nosedive. They just thought that was happening to me, and I was just kind of like acting out. Um, but actually I thought, well, well, no, like... I've just been to the greatest show ever. I'm actually quite happy that I made it. So like, why on earth would I purposely lose 20 kilo? And I'm seeing blood. So like, that's not making it up. Um, so it took about nine months of diagnosing with, uh, with Crohn's. I didn't know what it was at the time. I was about to say, it, it's a, even before kind of like, Rosie was the first person that I met when, you know, at university that I, I kind of knew you had Crohn's disease. I didn't know what Crohn's disease was until I met her at university. It actually took to someone to actually to have it for me to then Google it and actually Google the symptoms from it as well. So I'm guessing that was pretty the same for a lot of other people that you knew as well. I mean, was, were your parents in the same boat to an extent as well? Or did they kind of know anything about it before? No, none. Um, I, I literally thought when I got diagnosed that I'd get some sort of medication and I'll be on my way. Not knowing the uh, roller coaster what it was going to bring. Yeah, it's a chronic condition, isn't it? Yeah, you can't, you can't cure it. So how, how, how's it been living with, 
with it since since then. Was it in twenty ten? Um, uh, two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Um, so was that the worst it got then? No, it got worse um, progressively. Um, but the the initial kind of diagnosis, well, well before that, it it kind of felt really bad, obviously. Um, but not knowing just like what it was going to bring in the future was quite scary for me at 19, 20. Um, especially when, you know, I got diagnosed, it was pretty much, you know, said that I should retire and, you know, I'll be at a massive disadvantage of Crohn's disease and top level sport. Um, so at the time it was quite weird when, you know, I was getting told actually just to walk away now and just focus on my health. So what was the, what was the worst point that you got with it then? Well, the worst point, there's been probably phases throughout my career. Uh, I think right now is probably the worst point, the last couple of years. Um, but obviously back then, it felt huge. And then obviously it's just gotten worse. and like The, the intensity of it has gotten worse and worse throughout my career. Right, okay. I mean, I, I guess you must have seen other people. I guess you met up with other people with Crohn's disease as well at, at, some, at some point or... Have you yeah, shared stories with them or? Not at the time. So at the time, uh, I didn't know what it was. Um, and it was, it was also the fact that I wanted to meet other people with Crohn's, but I needed to meet people that had Crohn's that also competed at the top level. Because there's no research back then when it came to, you know, IBD and top, top level sport. We're not talking about like the everyday gym user. We're talking about elite sport. Um, and it, I was told that you know, no Chrome sufferer in history had ever won a medal at the Olympic or Paralympic Games at the time. Oh, wow. So uh, the records are against you, essentially. Yeah. I found somebody from America, a rower, I think a rower or a kayaker. Um, she had Crohn's and she went to three Olympic Games to the USA. And I saw like a YouTube video, like an interview she did. And she said that uh, her best position was 10th at the Games. But she said that Crohn's was always going to limit her potential. And I was like, oh my God, this is real now. Like, this is crazy. So I came ninth in Beijing. So I did one better. But that didn't take the uncertainty away of actually, maybe, she's, maybe people are right around me. Maybe I can't get a medal at the Games because nobody's ever done it. But then at the same time, I'm thinking you benched 190 kilos the previous day which would have been bronze and obviously if you did that on that day you you would have got you could you would have got the bronze medal so well we three days before so yeah like yeah, yeah three days before yeah uh yeah but i guess like it's weird crohn's like well it hit me the night before right so two days before i was technically healthy and normal so for me it was like well have i got one have i got the team to pull this off, the knowledge, because I need, I need the knowledge, to how much like, suffering is going to happen from now to the next Paralympics or my life. Because I, I didn't know what was going to come. I just didn't know. It was just loads of uncertainty. So at the time, I thought, well, yeah, thank you for the advice, but I'm just going to go for it anyway. Um, but then not knowing actually just how hard it was going to be. Yeah, I guess you must have got specialists kind of into the team that you had as well. Um, that, and, and I'm guessing that, that pretty led up to London as well after that or not? Uh, when I got diagnosed, I actually got, I actually got a drop from the team because they thought it was over for me. What, just, just like that? Well, we had a discussion and um, they did not, didn't, didn't reckon that I could probably come back from it, from, from the advice that were given by doctors. Um, plus, you have to remember, I'd lost like, you know, the shape that I was in when I got diagnosed was nowhere near. Um, it was going to take a very long time for me to, one, you know, get to a level where I was healthy and two, then get to a level to compete. Um, it was going to take years and years. So, yeah, I was, I was, um, we kind of agreed that I shouldn't be on the team anymore because uh, I'm not going to be competitive, uh, which is understandable. Like, I know how the system works and I know, like, you know, it's like a job, right? If you don't achieve your goals and your aims, you get fired. But I didn't get fired. It was just, it was mutual. And yeah, I had to, had to go it alone. I was lucky though, that Scottish widow, I was sponsored by Scottish widow at the time. They offered to pay for my uh, medical insurance. I went private. Oh, nice. So, so you, had, you, you had that. 
yeah, they, they literally saved my life because um, if it wasn't for that private um, route, uh, I would not have been anywhere near. And you ended up finishing fourth in, in, in London. So what was the journey from Beijing and, you know, getting dropped and everything which went on in 2009 to eventually, you know, being in London and actually, you know, competing again? Um, so after Beijing, I didn't compete for about two years. Um, so 2009, I actually did retire from the sport because it, it just got so bad. I was actually collapsing in the gym. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was literally collapsing, actually agony. I was in agony every day. I wasn't sleeping, weren't eating. Um, there's there was no way I was going to train. So I retired in 2009 to try kind of at least tackle my health and focus on it. Uh, so I saw my pride and you know accept defeat sort of thing. Then in 2010, um, I got worse and I was rushed into hospital for emergency surgery to save my life. Oh wow! Yeah, 2010. So I remember the night before. The operation, the doctor said to me, I need to prepare my friends and family for the worst tomorrow because he just doesn't know what he's going to find. Was it kind of a 50-50 kind of choice almost? Not, not choice, but a 50-50 kind of inevitability about it to an extent that, the, that you kind of got from the doctor or was, it kind of, was there more chance that you were going to kind of survive from it? It was, such a big, it was considered such a big operation, I just didn't know because I was that sick. I just didn't know if I was going to get through the operation. Um, and they also didn't know whether or not to give me a bag or not. They just didn't know what was inside. So um, everything was uncertain. So you had to literally cut me open to see what he could do for me. And I said to him, I said to him, look, one, don't give me a bag because it means my career is definitely over. Uh, and two, if you cut me straight open, it means that I will take me long to like recover. So if you do it keyhole, I'd literally owe you my life. And he started laughing and he said, no. Like, I just I can't promise you anything. Like, I'm here to save your life and, you know, your life is more important than you competing. So, uh, yeah, I managed to wake up and literally the first thing I did was, was touch my stomach to see if there's a bag or if he cut me right open. And the nurse said, actually, it went better than expected and uh, I'm very lucky. And it was Keyhole. And I thought, right, he's giving me another chance. London it is. You see, at that point, you must have been over the moon to be honest, at that point. Even at a low point like that, you must have been thinking, because knowing you, you the positive attitude that you probably would have had, that you would, must have been thinking, yeah, I, I can do this now. This is kind of like, it's the road to recovery starts right here. Well, it's weird because um, I, I woke up and I thought, oh my God, I've been given another chance. So I was like buzzing. It might be the medication that I was on too, probably. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was, I, was, I was like, this is great. Then I got to the room and my parents and my friends and family, like, they were literally, like, in tears, like, relieved. And I was like, who died? They couldn't believe I came in, like, with a bigger smile on my face. And then, obviously, like, I got checked over by the doctor and the surgeon and the nurses. And then I said to them, oh, I'm going to, like, thank you, but I think I'm going to give this another crack. Like, London's two years away. I can't let the parade go by in my home city. And he literally freaked out at me. He said, no. It's like, we've literally had to, you know, we've literally saved you. You cannot rush this. It's, it's about six months of uh, doing nothing. You have to recover. And uh, I was in the gym two weeks later. Two weeks? Yeah. Like, he, he had to clear me. But um, I, I said to him, like, if I can prove to you I can recover faster than anybody else, would you clear me? And uh, he said, well, that's your challenge. But, you know, I'm not going to clear you if, if I don't think you're ready. And I managed to recover at a rate that was unprecedented at the time in terms of that operation. And in terms of Crohn's disease then, I, I, yeah, it's still chronic, but was it, you know, uh, uh, when you had that um, moving forward, was there, you know, occasions in the next, before, before London, were, were there occasions as well where you thought, oh, I'm, I might, might not make this potentially, given what's happened? Yeah, so what I did was, um, because I was like losing every battle to Crohn's up to that point, I made a well, I bet on myself to make the Commonwealth Games four months later after that operation in Delhi, which freaked everybody out, even the doctors. They were just like, they weren't happy with me. Uh, so I literally dragged myself through that pain. I actually got there and came fifth to the Commonwealth Games um, after two years out. So for me, that was my first little win with Crohn's. And I knew from then on that maybe I did have what it took to get to London. Unfortunately for me, 
after the Commonwealth Games, I got sick again because I came back too early. Okay, yeah, so the 2011 season, it was, it was bad because I was actually ill again and um, I was just not in, I wasn't in a great way. So obviously I think I came back too quickly. So I rushed that process. Um, and to be honest, I didn't think I qualified for 2012. So the last competition uh, in Dubai, which was like the last chance to qualify in, that was the February 2012. I completely missed all my lifts in Dubai. So actually, I didn't think I qualified. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I came back and uh, I thought, well, that's it then. Uh, I better retire because, you know, I gave it a right good crack and unfortunately just didn't make it. Not knowing that in 2011, when I went to Holland, in, in a very small comp that we did, it actually actually counted. Well, that's the thing. It, but, it, it, that's but, every, every tournament matters. That's... But the, the issue, the thing was, I qualified and lost again. I only got the last spot. Couldn't believe it. So how how was I'm going to ask how was the Paralympics in London like the actual feel? Because for me, I mean, I, I was you know, born in '97, so I, I yeah, it was it was still quite young. It's the first Beijing. I kind of remember Beijing a bit. London was. Uh, we went to like the athletics, and we went to the uh, the blind football Paralympics, which was amazing in Rome, beat Argentina as well, which would never happen in Olympic yeah. football. Um, but that 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 was amazing. Um, but I mean, I got a sense of the atmosphere kind of around the Olympic Park for you, especially you know growing up in East London, Tottenham, so close to there as well. It must have been incredible. Oh, I think I'm never going to experience. So I thought Beijing was good because it was actually a sold-out arena in Beijing. But London was a different level. Um, like, the media coverage, the way we were treated as Paralympians were, like, treated equal for the first time, I thought. Um, the, the atmosphere, the kind of... The XO arena for me, having 6,000 people packed out cheering for me was nuts. I felt famous for the first time ever. It was weird. But then, it's, cra- it's crazy, right? You had 6,000 people going nuts all you can hear is my parents. You can hear really? my parents. You yeah. can hear your parents. You can hear my parents, yeah. That. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely nuts. Like, they were, they were very loud. Um, and obviously, they were part of, they got to one of such theatre that I was involved in, uh, controversially, but, like, it was, you know, for me, like, even though, it, you know, I'm never going to forget London in terms of the occasion, uh, the actual day itself, that night, has broken my soul probably broke my soul in terms of what happened. Broken your soul? Yeah, well, it was the most controversial fourth place ever, I thought, um, in terms of what happened, in terms of, uh, you know, I should have won a medal, but, you know, got taken away from me by, you know, some potentially dodgy refereeing. Um, luckily, the, the rules have changed now and it's not going to happen again, but at the time, it was, it was very hard to take and it took a long time to get over it. I was about to say, how, how long did it take for you to, to get over that? Because obviously with, with the journey, I mean, you, you went from the theatre in a hospital to a theatre essentially at the Excel, so two different types of theatres. And then, you know, you had obviously the fourth place and then obviously the referee. And I think it's quite a well-known uh, referee because it has created that change. And I, I think, you know, that, that is something, I guess, to take out of it. But what, how long did it take you to, to recover from that? Um, I, so, it, so I woke up thinking about it and went to bed thinking about it for four years. So was it almost Rio 2016 is a chance to avenge this and this is kind of like my avenging mission and that was kind of, that was the key motivation for Rio? Or... No, so um, initially I, I wanted to quit and walk away. I hated the sport. I hated anything to do with 2012 and you know, all the post kind of, you know, montages and people talking about it. I just wanted to get away. I didn't want to speak about it at all. Because um, one, people just didn't understand why I wasn't given the lift. Uh, two, people that were actually there witnessing it just, just couldn't believe what was happening to me, especially after what happened to me like the four years previously. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to yeah, retire. And I thought, you know what, people are right. This is, it can't be done. So for those who sorry, for those who don't know, can you explain like what happened with the fourth place in the lift then? Yeah, so um, the first so in powerlifting you get three lifts, you get three attempts to lift the most you can lift basically, uh, and that reflects your ranking. So 
it got to, so I managed to incredibly break the European record on my second lift. And then I was in fourth place because of body weight. So basically, if you weigh the same as somebody else, but lift, lift the same, the person that's lighter gets the, gets the spot. So going down to the last lift, I had no choice but to go for it. Um, so I put 189 kilo on, managed to lift it. Uh, it wasn't given, but I thought it was a lift, uh, especially in the context of what was given to other lifters that day. Um, so, so, so we, you know, with a protest, um, you, the, the jury have a minute to decide whether or not it was a lift or not. So that, that was at the time. So I went backstage, put the protest in, and I thought, wait a minute, this is the, this is the longest minute I've ever had to wait. What is going on? Like, what is going on? So I said to my coach, I was like, it's been more than a minute, or am I like freaking out? So you can tell the desperation on like the faces, and um, it took about 15 minutes. So at the time, I'd cooled down, all that nervous energy, all that kind of emotion of thinking it was a lift and it wasn't given. And then uh, it turned out that four, no, what, the, the one person on the jury out of the five still just couldn't decide uh, if it was a lift or not. Uh, so, four, so, so four agreed, one didn't. So it had to be a unanimous decision? It has to be unanimous, yeah. And has that been the rule change now then? The rule change, yeah, so the rule change now is that um, the, the, the jury referee at the same time. Right, okay, so that kind of if, if, that. if there's an appeal, those go straight, they'll go straight to the lights. So it just, it takes literally seconds. Um, but then because the jury member just couldn't decide, I had to go out and retake the lift, which is virtually impossible to do. You can't lift maximally twice in 15 minutes, especially when you cool down. So I went out there managed to get the crowd like you know up for it because i needed the crowd the energy uh managed to lift it again and then it wasn't given managed to lift it again and it wasn't given it wasn't given was that for the same reason what's the context around the lifting overall then how, how was that so at the time they weren't allowed to give you a reason they weren't allowed to give you a reason whatsoever no so it's changed now now you know exactly what you did wrong with the color with the color scheme system Back then, nah, you, you don't, you don't, um, like it was only speculation. Oh, so, that seems, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's yeah, that, yeah. So it was, a, it was, you know, very controversial, very upset, even though nobody expected me to make the games. And obviously, I qualified last to get from 10th to 4th in five months after what happened to me is great. But it's the fact that bronze was the bronze was a lift that I lifted as well. So I was joint, like, if it wasn't for my body weight, I would have won bronze. Um, and, we t- and we actually worked out that because I weighed in with my boxer shorts that morning, that afternoon, that cost me 100 grams, which, which was the difference between bronze and fourth. Oh, wow. Yeah, so now I always weigh naked. <laughs> well, there's a fight for this. That's where you get the big crowds. That's 6,000 people. That's why they always turn up. Yes, I, yes it was the most... Um, yeah, it broke my soul that night, I think. Um, and it, it took me about four years to really get over it after... So moving on from London then, um, you know, you, you got the gold at the Worlds in Dubai, you got the gold at the Euros in Hungary in 2015, you went into Rio as the world and European champ. That must have been a great feeling. Oh yeah, it was crazy how, um, you know, from the cycle from like London to Rio is how successful I was. Um, you know, I never ever dreamt that I was going to be world champion at all. Um, I managed to break, you know, I managed to break four world records in the time as well. Um, and to be world number one for three years was, was nuts. Like, I just couldn't believe what was happening. Like, from, from being, you know, at the brink of, like, literally walking away to being on top of the world in, in a space of 18 months. Um, but obviously, going into the games in Rio, the, I think it was the expectation of, one, having to put the ghosts to bed in London. Two, I didn't really care about the performance. I just wanted a medal because I'd, I'd won every medal leading up to it. And the Paranquit one was the one that completed the, the career slam of medals. So I knew how important it was for me. And obviously it was the one that I dreamt of as a kid. So there was loads of emphasis on just getting a medal. Yeah, David always has always talked about, you know, in, in terms of he's got, you know, medals at, you know, at, you know European events and, uh, you, you know, world events. And 
but he hasn't got the Paralympic one. And he always says that, you know, people were judged on the medals at Olympics and Paralympics. And, you know, you can win all these medals at World and European Champs. You could be the seven-time world champion, but if you haven't got that Paralympic medal, then you're not judged as as successful as somebody who's got one Paralympic medal and, exactly. no, Europe, and no world championships. Exactly, yeah. And, 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 and obviously growing up, it was all about the Paralympic Games. Um, and obviously, like, it's not saying that the other competitions are lesser. It's just that because the Paralympic Games has such a big history and it's such a big occasion, um, it was it was always going to be the one that I wanted the most. And obviously, going into Rio, um, you know, that was you know that's, that's all I wanted. So, how how did Rio compare to to London then and Beijing? Uh, probably so. It's quite weird. Probably an anti climax. Um, I didn't perform very well, even though the seven days before the competition, I was in the best physical shape I've ever been. Um, I generally thought I was on the bench press 200, which is historic in our, our sore body weight. Um, like all the tests seven days before I competed were like the best they've been. So I knew going into it, I could at least scare uh, my, my, uh, Sharif Osman, who is considered the greatest. He's not been, he's not been beaten. So I thought if I can just, if I bench 200, I was scare him. If I scare him, it means I take him to the last lift and it's on him. Because I was never going to beat him because he's that good. So what's Sharif Osman's PB and what's the world record? I'm guessing he has the world record. Or yeah, so his world record is two eleven. Um, two eleven. Wow. So that is some jump still. Yes, but he's never really been pushed to the limit. He's never been pushed by somebody. And I thought that if I could lift two hundred and, and the shape that I was kind of suggests that I wasn't in, in that shape, it might take him to the last lift where he has to lift to win. And that was my kind of mentality. Um, but I think it was, I think leading up to Rio, um, it was the fact that I think I wasn't used to one of the media attention I was getting. I was one of the faces of the games. It was also the pressure of the Crohn's community thinking I could be the first Crohn's software to ever do it. Like you had loads of people counting on you, like people like literally hanging it around your neck before you even got there. And I wasn't really used to that sort of media um, like pressure at all because you know nobody, nobody knew who I was four years ago. Um, so I think for me, I just got to a point where I just wanted a medal. I didn't really, I think the performance went out the window and it was all about emotion. And I think it was the emotion that got to me um, in that period. Uh, looking and, back. And you lifted 190, didn't you, to get, to get silver? Yeah. Um, even though I was probably in way better shape than, than, than what that suggests. Um, I guess looking back now, even though I finally did it and, got the, and I got the medal, um, and obviously like I was so happy it was the performance that let me down. And you can argue and say that my performance in London was way better. But ironically, then you got the silver in the Rio. Irony, the irony, yeah. So Sharif Osman, I'm guessing he's won the last few gold medals at Paralympics. Three. Last three. He's, he's not been beaten since 2007. Oh. He's like, I describe him as the Usain Bolt of our sport. So I've been, I've been unlucky that I've been, well, lucky, unlucky. I've been in the presence of uh, something that great. So what was the uh, what was the gold medal um, lift that he did in in Rio then? He broke the world record, yeah, two eleven. About two eleven. Oh, so it's twenty one kilo difference to. But, but he he thing is he missed like two or three lifts. His performance wasn't that great either. So if I'd put on two hundred and got it, he would have been under so much pressure to to pull it off. And that's what's kind of like that's what kind of you think about like yeah he's incredible, but you had the opportunity and you failed to to put pressure on him. So is he around in Tokyo next year or is he retired now? No, no, he's, he's around. Um, well, fortunately for me, or unfortunately for me, because uh, of what's happened since, I'm actually not in his body weight anymore. So we're not rivals anymore. We're friends. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. So you, you've gone down, 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 down a body weight, which means that you've got a new challenger coming up. So if you could explain more about that as well. Yeah. So going down a body weight class um, doesn't make it any easier. Um, I'm up against someone that also hasn't been beaten in the Paralympic Games. Uh, that also was very close to Sharif Ahmed's world record at, at the body weight that I'm in now. Um, he's virtually unbeatable for the last couple of years. Um, but I do think technically I'm a little bit better than him. And I think that if I can put him under pressure, he's probably 
more inclined to make mistakes than Sharif because Sharif is for me he's, he's up there with the greatest um, and I think Ronald still has to prove that and uh, I think next year he gets the opportunity to prove it and that's where it becomes mental as well as physical as well and I guess it's kind of that mental kind of you know challenge for all you know all you athletes kind of going there that you know you've got to mentally be in a in, in the best kind of state at the time as well as well as a physical state and it's just trying to find that little balance overall and I mean you are competing on this day next year I think I saw you well, I thought I was supposed to compete at six o'clock tonight so uh... <laughs> tonight so yeah. yeah so that must be kind of surreal given what's happened with you know Covid and everything around that um I think to put some context behind it um I'm, I'm actually quite lucky there's a postponement to be honest um because obviously since since Rio I had the biggest flare of my career when it comes to Crohn's and I've been battling since um I was never going to be fit for the games this year I'm not even like I was on the verge of probably not qualifying so I'm still not even safe when it comes to qualifying so the postponement has been quite lucky for me so it's given me another year to prepare so how how bad did it get with Crohn's then after Rio um, very bad. Um, so didn't compete for two years after Rio, so 2018. Managed to, I don't know how on earth I made the Commonwealth Games in Australia with uh, how I felt. And then later that year, October 2018, um, probably the worst news you can probably imagine. Um, none of the medications that I was trying were working for me and uh, I had two options on the table. One was a stoma bag, which means that it's a life-changing, huge operation, which means I have to retire. The other option was a stem cell trial, uh, which lasted about a year from start to finish. But within the trial, I had to have um, aggressive chemotherapy. Chemotherapy with that? Yeah, within the trial. Um, Oh, wow. Therefore, with any option that I took, at at worst, I'm not going to make Tokyo. Um, or it means I probably have to retire completely. And there's no way like, nobody's ever come back from them two options at the level that, I've, that I'm at, um, especially in our sport. Um, so it was hard to, well, it wasn't hard to digest it because I knew it was coming because I know how I felt. Um, so yeah, I within taking that kind of uh, all the information on board, within 24 hours, I knew exactly what I was going to do. So I had to ask myself whether or not, one, I was satisfied with my career and I was happy to walk away now and to actually focus on my health. Um, you know, I've been lucky to have competed at the top level, you know, win medals at major championships. You know, do I, did I really want to prove anything else to myself? Um, but the other question I asked was, have I really pushed a disease to its very limits? Now, am I like... Do I really, you know, kind of really? Quite a, that's quite a deep question, actually. You're asking a hypothetical deep question, asking you how how can you push the disease itself, let alone yourself, to to to, to, to a limit. Um, I think I've always known that I could suffer a lot, but I didn't think I'd suffered enough. I think I could take more. I thought I felt, and I felt like the, the, obviously the, the options weren't great, but I knew that there's always a way if you're willing to find it. So I went away within 24 hours and knew exactly what I was going to do. I was going to take another route, which has never been done. Um, and I spoke to my team about it. Everyone was quite apprehensive at the time because it's you know, not been done. And um, also it was, it, at the time, it was considered the more risky option out of the two, even though the other two options were hugely risky. Um, <laughs> like crazy. It's, it's the kind of the least worst option you've yeah, got. I was, like, yeah, like, yeah. I was like, well, you know what? Like all my other options are like risky anyway but with this option potentially it gives me at least a chance to at least make the games um so we went and spoke to the consultant um he weren't too pleased at first but i managed to well we managed to convince him that you know if we can monitor me to a level that you know is, is really high uh so i got monitored every day all my symptoms are tracked any little change is documented and we can react straight away um, that, you know, it could be an option. And um, yeah, I've, I've taken the option. So, so I took the other option and delayed the stem cell trial because the stem cell trial had a deadline for next, early next year. Right. Okay. So um, I knew there was, you know, I knew that I could delay the stem cell and go to this route and make the games and then take it afterwards. Um, it's just that, you know, the, the option that I took was, 
you know, unpredictable, challenging. And uh, it's been kind of a, a constant fight throughout, you know, daily to, to try to try get through it because it's not a very good, uh, well, it's not very good when it comes to competing at all on training. So would you say Tokyo is kind of your final, final games then, looking, looking at that? Um, I, think, I think initially I knew that I'd accepted from the beginning that I might not even make the games in Tokyo. Um, and I think it was unrealistic for me to actually aim for any sort of medal. So um, that was two years ago. But now I think like, even though today, if I'd competed today, I'd probably come like maybe sixth, maybe. So um, I felt like the delay has given me another chance to bridge that gap. Um, I still don't know what's going to happen to me in terms of, you know, what's going to, what, you know, the medication the is going to bring. But, you know, my job doesn't change. My job is to make sure that I give myself the best chance. And that's what the team has done for me. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully that, you know, you'll be able to, to make it. And hopefully, you know, I'll be that Paralympic gold medal is, is always better than a silver medal anyway. So um, do you think it's realistic winning, winning, winning gold if, if conditions, you know, uh, and, you know, into next year? And everything goes perfect. Uh, realistically, I don't think people think I'm in a medal. I think a lot of people think I've been um, like, if if I got there, it would have been it would have been a big achievement after what's happened to me. Um, personally, I think it's realistic that I probably will challenge for some sort of you know maybe lesser medal, but to win gold will be. Uh, I don't think it's that realistic right now. I think ask me in six months' time, maybe maybe Christmas. <laughs> Um, it's a great chance to prove people wrong anyway. Um, just finishing off, I just wanted to have a chat with you about the uh, new Paralympic documentary and talking about proving people wrong. Um, Netflix, I've seen the trailer for it, Rising Phoenix. It, it, it looks amazing. Um, I, I saw your Facebook post earlier on it as well, actually. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? And actually, you know, I guess, you know, London 2012 was pretty the big thing. You know, the last leg came from that and, you know, the, the role of the media in, in Paralympic um, you know, the world, it, it, it's been huge overall. The last decade has been amazing for just breaking down the stereotypes and this documentary is another chance for that to happen. Yes, yeah, so I watched it this morning um, and uh, I'm not being biased, but it's probably the most powerful film I've ever seen. And I, I'm, I'm like, I'll read a harsh critic. So for me to say that is big. Um, I encourage everyone to watch it. I think you, you kind of leave like inspired, but also like, you get butterflies every single time somebody speaks because they speak so well, the way they describe their journeys and, and also the, the variety of people they've used in, into the, in the film was incredible. Um, it's just, it, it, you know, portrays the Paralympic games as just something that, you know, everyone can be can, like, inspired to. Um, and I feel like for me, for the Paralympic games to be like portrayed in that way, it, it's just going to be, it's just massive um, for just how far it's come in the last, well, especially in my career, from starting off from not knowing what the games were in '96 and I'm going to the Olympics, to you know now we've got you know a film that you know definitely will rival. I think it should it deserves an Oscar. Give it an Oscar. Just give it an Oscar now. <laughs> it, it would be amazing if that happened. I think overall, it, it's weird to think that you know. I mean, you got the inspiration kind of from sports, you know, from Atlanta watching Michael Jordan, but now anybody who's got a disability can watch Paralympians, not just Olympians, actually, you know, even, do what they do as well. Even able-bodied people can look at that and go, you know what? That's incredible. Like, I want to go to the Olympics. It's vice versa. I think it's going to work both ways. I think you're going to have a lot of able-bodied potential athletes looking at the film thinking that is incredible. Like, look at them stories, you know, they'll, they'll inspire them. Um, and, and the thing is, like, especially after 2012, you had Paralympians being superstars, being role models for the first time, which for me was just like, this is incredible. Um, where before Beijing, it was just like, oh, they're there, well done for competing. Thumbs up. <laughs> um, and that for me was just like patronising to the core. So, you know, we've come a long way since, since um, you know, Beijing. But now it, it is an equal playing field. And looking ahead, I guess, you know, sorry, uh, not Beijing, um, okay. Birmingham in 2022. Oh, yeah. Um, that's going to be, again, it's going to be another chance for the UK to, to actually showcase, you know, on from Glasgow, on from London in 2012. Uh, it, you know, that's a great chance for them to, first time since Manchester 2002, I think, yeah. So what are your thoughts looking ahead to that? 
Birmingham excites me because um, obviously if I get my PhD, it will be in Birmingham Uni. So it'll be around the corner. Oh, it would actually be in Birmingham as well. Yeah, and obviously I, I'm, I'm based in Loughborough, so I'm only 40 minutes down the road. Um, and if I manage to get through Tokyo unscathed, and we just don't know that yet, I'd be very tempted to go for Birmingham because why wouldn't I? It's my home, um, it's my home Commonwealth Games. Um, it'll be silly for me not to think about going. So, yeah, for me, it excites me. Um, and to do it you know, in front of a home crowd would be extra special. I think you've got to, man. I think if, if, that, <laughs> if there is a chance, it, it, it's such an obvious, obvious way to end, end a career, I guess, with that as well, to an extent. Oh, no-brainer, especially if I do well as well. Like, it would be a great way to, and if I do do well, it would be a great way to kind of um, make up for what happened in London on home soil. Yeah, and that would be a Commonwealth. If you win that Commonwealth medal, that you complete the whole set, then wouldn't you? Euros, Worlds. No, so when it comes to golds, I'm going to need a, a Paralympic gold and a Commonwealth Games gold for that. Uh, but I've completed the set when it comes to all of the medals. Um, oh, oh, right, okay. Yeah, so I've got like one gold at the Worlds, European gold, then obviously silver at the Commonwealth Games and two bronzes at the Commonwealths. Um, so obviously a gold next year and then a gold a year after means that, you know... It, it would be the perfect ending, wouldn't it? Oh, oh yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd, um, you, you'll find me in the crowd raving with... Uh, Spectators, <laughs> uh, you might find yourself at Buckingham Palace at that right if you, if you if you manage to do that. So, um, uh, but uh, really, Ali, really appreciate uh, coming on, and um, you know, I think hopefully the stories that you've mentioned, especially with Crohn's disease, and you know how you kind of battled through that, and actually, you know, um, you pretty inspired a lot of people anyway. And hopefully, you know, this podcast will be able to sort of get that message out, especially during you know lockdown without a Paralympic Games. Ironically. Obviously, we're doing the recording on the day that um, you're meant to be competing um, anyway. So maybe it's just meant to be in that sense. Well, uh, well. maybe it was. But um, uh, really appreciate you coming on and um, uh, enjoy enjoy the day. And uh, yeah, um, if you've got anything, if you've got any, I always end these things. If you've got any kind of last message for anyone out there who wants to kind of get into the sport that you're in, what would that message be? So with you powerlifting, what, what would that be? Oh, wow. Um, so for me, like, powerlifting isn't just about, you know, being the strongest, you know, lifter on the planet. If you combine that with your, like, technical, like, it's a technical sport as well. So for, so to, for you to, like, be able to achieve that balance is actually something that, you know, it's, it's, it's very rare in our sport, um, especially at top level. Um, but also for me, what makes powerlifting so great is that, you get to meet so many incredible, strong lifters around the world. Um, and yeah, they are your rivals, but actually they end up being your friends too. So actually it's a very social sport. Perfect way to end it, Ali. Perfect way. Uh, thanks for coming on and I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Some Essex Lad and the Paralympian. Please leave us a rating, comment, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast. That means you'll get instant messages and when a new episode will drop directly into your lap. Also give us a follow on social media. On Twitter, it's at EssexLadPara, and Instagram is at EssexLadParalympian. You can also like our Facebook page. Just type in some Essex Lad and a Paralympian. Farewell, and we'll see you soon.